0: Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 simply states, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The doctrine of justification by faith alone, as we noted again this morning, was the great central plank of the Protestant Reformation. The topic of justification is at the very heart of the gospel. There's a question that was asked in the book of Job, which was simply, how can man be just with God? How can man be just with God? Really behind that is this idea, how can a sinner who is legally guilty before the bar of God and his holy law be viewed as a legally innocent saint in God's courtroom. How can that happen? Well, it happens through justification. Justification is a Bible word. We even read the word in our Bible reading tonight, right there at the end of chapter 4 of Romans. Justification. It is a Bible word, and it is a word that appears with similar terms. In many other places. For example, even just restricting our study to the book of Romans, uh, we see that in Romans chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5, all contain references to this term and like terms. For example, Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore by the deeds of the law, There shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. There's the word justified. Again, you look down at verse 25 of chapter 4. And it mentions there, who was delivered for our offenses. And it really means delivered because of our offenses. And was raised again because of our justification. The next verse then says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the word justified is further used in chapter 5, in verse 9, in verse 16, and verse 18. Justified. Justification. You see it in verse 16. Justification. And again, in verse 18. It mentions justification of life. It is a Bible word and it really simply refers to the establishment of a sinful person in a righteous standing before God. So you and I do not enjoy a standing of righteousness before God by nature but rather we appear as condemned sinners, guilty sinners, liable to the judgment of God. But when we're justified, we're brought into a new standing before God. And there's a simple definition of justification in our Shorter Catechism, in answer 33. I say simple, but it's also very profound. In answer to the question, what is justification? It says, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins, And accepteth us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone and to me that's not only one of the most concise but one of the best definitions of justification you could ever come up with you will notice that it's not a process it is an act of God's free grace it's something that happens in an instant And it is, of course, a legal term because it concerns and has to do with our relationship to the law of God. It's a a legal term. It's a term that belongs to the courtroom. Justification. It really refers to our standing before God's law. As I say, in ourselves, we're guilty, guilty sinners, because we've broken God's law. We can't keep it. We can't keep it at all, never mind perfectly, which we're liable to do, which we're commanded to do. And so we are, therefore, justly condemned to suffer the penalty of the law. This is why the Bible says in Romans 6 and verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin. It's what we deserve. It's what we have earned because of our sinful condition. But the good news of the gospel is, is that guilty men and women like us can be legally acquitted, freed from all charges against our name, but at the same time counted or reckoned as perfectly righteous and viewed by God as those who have fulfilled all of the law's demands perfectly. That's an amazing thing. And it's all because of Christ. Because Christ took the liability of our sin he became so identified with us as to be legally responsible for our sins suffered the penalty of those sins and his perfect righteousness has been made over to us credited to our account it's a bit like a bank account where you have on one side the debit and on the other side you have the credit and the Lord takes away the debit from us our sins And he puts into the credit column his righteousness so that we are viewed by God as having done all that he did. Because he did it for us. He did it as us, representing us in his work. And so this is a wonderful and a blessed truth. Justification. Pardon from sin. And within that is the beautiful doctrine of imputed righteousness. Sometimes we get afraid of terms, imputed, propitiation, and so on. And we get bogged down sometimes with these words, and particularly if we've not tried to study what they mean. But actually, the meaning of them is quite simple. When something is imputed to you, it is reckoned against your name. It is credited to your account. That's all it means. So when there's an imputation of sin to Christ, it means that Christ is viewed as being liable for those sins, even though he had no sin of his own. Legally, he took our sins upon his own person. Our sins were imputed to him. And because of that, we have our sins not imputed to us. So there's this doctrine which is taught by the Apostle Paul as well which is the non-imputation of sin. In other words, we are sinners on ourselves, but because Christ has taken our sins and the responsibility for them, that sin is no longer reckoned to be ours. It's no longer against our name. The charges are all squashed. We're justified. Justification involves pardon from sin. It also involves imputed righteousness. The imputed righteousness of Christ is his perfect holiness made over to us, reckoned against our name. And that's a wonderful truth that we can study all by itself. Imputed righteousness. Now the word righteousness is a term that is closely related to justification. When when we are justified, we are accounted righteous before the law. We are declared righteous. A state of righteousness is, if you like, really being straight or conforming to a standard of measurement so that we measure up to that. That's what righteousness means. So if you're a righteous person, you are in a right standing legally Before the eyes of the law, you're in a right standing legally before God. Now, there are people trying to establish that standing by their works. Look with me at Romans chapter 10. This was the problem with national Israel, this was the problem with the Jews. Paul himself was a Jew, a converted Jew, and he wanted to see the Jews saved. And I believe that Christians today should want the Jews to be saved. Brethren, he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, and there's no doubt he's talking about national Israel there, he's talking about Jewish people. He said, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they might be saved, because they're not saved. But then he says this for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They think they're right. They want to be right. They think they're following after God. They want to be right with God. But even though they have great zeal for their religion, it's a misplaced zeal. It's not according to knowledge. The next verse tells us why. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Righteousness. It is to be in a right standing legally before the eyes of God's law. See, God has a law, and we're bound by that perfect standard. We must keep it perfectly. This is what God demands. We have to keep the law perfectly. The problem is that we can't. We've already broken it, and even if we were to try to keep it perfectly from now on, we can't. We're incapable of doing it. But righteousness is that state of having met all requirements of the law Unrighteousness is the state we are in when we fail to meet all the requirements of the law. Now, go back to Romans chapter 3. You see there in verse 10, it says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no not one. That means not one of us is in a right standing before God. That's all that means. Not one of us is in a right standing before God. We need to be made right. So you go down to verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. And that word guilty simply means subject to the judgment of God or liable to his judgment. We are unrighteous. How can we get into that place where we're looked upon as having met all the requirements of the law, because we've broken the law. How can we go from being unrighteous before God to being righteous before God? Righteousness merits the reward of life, but unrighteousness merits the penalty of death. The wages of sin is death. So how are we justified? How can we move from being unrighteous to being righteous how can we move from being in a wrong a wrong standing before God legally to being in a right standing before God legally well this is where Christ comes in we're justified that is we're pardoned from all our sins we're viewed as perfectly righteous in God's sight when God accepts us as though we have perfectly kept his law and are exempt from its penalty but how can that be But we know it's not by works. That's out the window. We can't be made righteous by works. We cannot be justified. That is to say, we can't be pardoned from our sins. We cannot be reckoned or accounted as righteous by any work that we do. Paul made that clear to Titus in chapter 3, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by God's mercy. See, good works are the fruit and not the cause of justification. This we learn from the passage we read tonight in Romans chapter 4. It's very clear from verses 5 through 8. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And then he quotes David in the Psalms. Psalm 32, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. The word means atoned for. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. See that? There's the doctrine of non-imputation. God does not impute sin. He doesn't reckon it to be ours any longer when it's laid upon Christ. This is the gospel. So we have to look at how this takes place. What's the method of justification? How do you become justified? How can you come into a right standing before God, before his law? How can you ever get to the point where you're looked upon by God as perfectly righteous? Well, it's not by works. It is by grace. It is by free grace. And we're talking tonight about a free justification upon the merits of Jesus Christ. Now, when you look at Romans chapter 3, you'll see that there's mention made there and in Romans chapter 5 of the free gift and of grace. Look at Romans 3, 24. Being justified, there's the word again, being justified freely by his grace, how? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But then chapter 5 from verse 15. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Salvation is by grace. And you'll note there the references to the free gift and to grace. Grace is the free, unmerited, undeserved favor of God to guilty sinners. Let me say that again. Grace is the free... Unmerited or unearned, undeserved favor of God to guilty sinners. Someone defined grace in that word, G R A C E, God's riches at Christ's expense. In justification, this is God's method. It's an act of God's free grace towards sinners who are personally and really guilty who are deserving of God's wrath and condemnation. They deserve to go to hell. But he justifies them upon the merits of Christ. Now, as regards this method of being justified, I just want to point out two things tonight. There's the glory of free justification. First of all, Paul speaks sometimes of the glorious gospel of the blessed God, the glorious gospel. That is a gospel of glory. And the glory of the gospel is seen in various different ways. It's seen in its simplicity, but it's also seen in its great mystery. And there's a lot of mystery involved in God becoming flesh in the incarnation and dying for us. How that could ever happen, I have no idea. That God could become man and as a man suffer for men and be viewed by God as being liable for that man's sins and dying in his room instead. It's a great mystery. But it's a a gospel that's glorious as well in its ingenuity, in its wisdom. God is described as God only wise. And certainly only God could come up with a plan for the salvation of sinners like this one. One that fully preserves God's character as a holy, just, and righteous God who can't ignore any breach of his law, but yet at the same time wonderfully reveals his love, his mercy, and his grace toward undeserving and ill-deserving sinners. It's a glorious gospel. It's the gospel of a free justification upon the merits of Jesus Christ alone received by faith, simple faith. Again, Romans three twenty six. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just. In other words, that he might remain just, but as well be the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. You see, God is a righteous God, he's a holy God, he's a perfect God. And one of his attributes, one of his perfections, and we looked at this recently in a prayer meeting, is Righteousness. God is a righteous God. And his law is a reflection of his character. It's a righteous law. As a righteous God, he demands perfect conformity to his standard. He doesn't do like many teachers today and grade you on the curve. He's a God who is inflexibly righteous. Because that's a reflection of his character. He demands perfect conformity to his standard, the law. The gospel does not lower God's standard. You know, there's some people give the impression that the gospel kind of replaced the law. You know, people used to be saved by keeping the law, and then the Lord did away with the law, and then now we have the gospel. But let me clearly say, the gospel has not replaced the law. God doesn't have now a less rigid way to get to him than he used to have. We are taught in the Bible that the law and the gospel are not mutually exclusive. In fact, Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 5, that he had not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. The law and the gospel go together. The gospel fulfills the law of God. The law is fulfilled for our justification by Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means that Christ had to keep the law perfectly in his person. That's why we talk about the righteous life of Christ. And that righteous life of Christ, he laid down for us. And that righteous life of Christ, where he fulfilled every obligation of God's law, it's made over to us in our justification. That means that when we get saved, when we trust in Christ, It's as though we have kept the law perfectly for God. Jesus did it for us, but it's reckoned to our account. That's an amazing thing. You'll notice the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ about the law and the gospel in Matthew chapter 22. These are really important words. Someone came to the Lord and as usual tried to trip him up, tried to make a fool out of him, tried to make him say something wrong so that they could use that against him. But in Matthew chapter 22, we have this story toward the end where someone came, a lawyer, that is someone who was a student of God's law, tempting him, says that in verse 35 of Matthew 22, and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. There's perfection. Loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and loving your neighbor as yourself. There's the teaching of Christ, which is that God demands a perfect fulfillment of both the letter and the spirit of his moral law. How can you and I do that, even close to perfectly, let alone in total perfection? Well, the answer is we can't do it. But that's what God demands. God demands perfection. Not that you do your best. I hear people sometimes excuse themselves this way. Well, I do my best. I try my best. And I hope in the end that God will accept me. Well, your best even if you were able to give it, it's not good enough. Your best is not perfection. And that's what God demands, perfection. The perfect fulfillment of both the letter and the spirit of his law. God has to be true to himself because he's perfect. He has to be true to his law. He can't set it aside. He can't lessen the demands of the law. Justice demands a perfect righteousness. Righteousness. A perfect conformity to a perfect standard. Let me show you this from the Old and New Testaments. It is stated clearly, first of all, in the Law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 26. These verses are so important. Deuteronomy 27 verse 26. You can take a note of it if you're not able to keep up with my turning to the pages. I have them already. Deuteronomy 27 and verse 26. It says there, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them. And all the people shall say Amen. See that? There's a curse on any failure to keep God's law perfectly. Now keep your finger there and go to the New Testament, to the book of Galatians. To Galatians chapter 3. And here we have this quotation. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. See that? There's a curse on you if you don't keep the law perfectly. Now you might think, well, God ought to be like I am. And you ought to be content with me trying my best. Sometimes the children do tests at school. They do exams. And the parents might be content with the child's grades in school because he or she did their very best. They're convinced that they couldn't have done any better. They did their best. It's not perfect, but they did their very best. God doesn't grade us like that. God says your best isn't good enough when it comes to his law. The only grade God accepts, if I could put it that way, is perfection. James chapter 2, verse 10 states it in other words. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. See that? So then, preacher, what hope is there for any of us? There's none without Christ. There's no hope for us, because we can't keep the law perfectly. Even if we tried to keep it perfectly, we can't. And God won't accept anything less than perfection. Our only hope, then, is in God's grace and mercy, where God, who is a just God, who will not and cannot set aside all the legal requirements of his law, who will not acquit the wicked, will accept the righteousness of Christ for us, in our place, God devised a method whereby he could remain just and at the same time be a justifier of the ungodly. This is what the gospel provides us with. Grace has devised a way for God to declare sinners as perfectly righteous, though in themselves, remember, they are personally unrighteous and deserving of punishment. It's not just that all of a sudden God says, well, you're, you're not personally guilty of these things. We are personally guilty of those things. But grace has devised a way for God to declare us perfectly righteous and to remove the guilt and the sin. And this is the glory of the gospel of justification. Christ is our righteousness when we receive him. So you and I require a perfect standard, a righteousness that's outside of ourselves because we repeat Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. We need Christ. We need a righteousness that's perfect because left before a judge of inflexible justice and holiness in myself, I've got no hope at all. But in the gospel... God has provided me with a way of escape from condemnation, and that is by his justice being satisfied for me in the person and work of Jesus. Because all our sins were on him laid. He nailed them all to the tree. Jesus, the debt of my sin, fully paid. He paid the ransom for me. In and through the Lord Jesus Christ, God remains righteous and is at the same time able to be gracious to believing sinners. What glory there is in that gospel. The glory of justification. But we have to think again further of the ground of this justification. What is the ground of our justification? We've already been speaking some concerning that. Romans chapter 5 is very clear on this. In Romans 5, verses 18 and 19, the scripture puts it this way Therefore, as by the offense of one, that's Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, that's Christ, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, many were made sinners. The word actually is constituted. Many were constituted sinners. So by the obedience of one, that's Christ, shall many be constituted righteous. How can guilty sinners be acquitted from all the charges at the bar of God and be accounted perfectly righteous? It is through the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. Being found in fashion as a man, he, Christ, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There's two things there. He became obedient unto death. That's the life of Christ. But then there's the death of the cross. There's the death of Christ. The doing of Christ, he became obedient. The dying of Christ, the death of the cross. In his doing, he earned a perfect righteousness for us by keeping the law perfectly in his life. Never did anything wrong. Never. Think of him as a boy in the carpenter's shop in Nazareth. The Bible is silent on those things. But we know that that's where he was. He was brought up by Mary and Joseph, Joseph was a carpenter. Jesus would have helped him in the carpenter shop. Never once did he speak back to the parents. Never once did he curse. Never once did he take God's name in vain. Never once did he do anything wrong. He lived a life that was pleasing, entirely pleasing to God the Father. And then he went to the cross and gave up that holy life for us at Calvary. A perfect Saviour who can provide us with a perfect righteousness. The glory of the gospel of free justification is in the fact that Christ assumed all our obligations. He bore all of our sins and their punishment. In his life and death, he obeyed the law for us, as us. He suffered the penalty of the law that we had broken. And then his righteousness that he earned was imputed. To us. We haven't time to look at all these verses, but in Romans 4, verses 6 through 8, and verses 22 through 24, it speaks of imputation. Righteousness being imputed to us. To impute is a verb that's closely related to a verb to justify. They're linked together. And it means to consider or to reckon or to charge to an account. It's a bit like the sport of baseball you could have a runner in baseball a sub and he brings in a run and that run is counted as the person's run that he represents it's counted for him the Lord Jesus in our justification imputes our guilt to the Lord Jesus it's as if if he had sinned and yet he never sinned but he's treated as if he's a sinner because he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he hath made him to be sin for us. Think about that. The Lord Jesus, the holy, pure, spotless Lamb of God is viewed by God as that vile sinner. And then his righteousness is imputed to us. God regarded Christ as guilty of all that we were responsible for. He dealt with him accordingly while at the same time regarding the believing sinner as righteous and dealing with him accordingly. That's an amazing truth. Believers are justified freely on the ground of the vicarious life and death of the Lord Jesus. This is the gospel Let's Europe and nations beyond. People had been mired in heathen superstition for centuries. Told that if they did their best, that that would be good enough, as long as they put enough money in the plate. I was talking to someone last week who was brought up a Roman Catholic. And I asked him, what was it like When you went to confession, even as a young boy. Ah, he said I used to just make things up. Just make things up. Oh, I did this and I did that. Did the other thing. The priest would give him penance to do. Say so many Our Fathers and so many Hail Marys and do some act of righteousness. And then it was a clean slate. Till the next time. Then he would confess whatever he thought he could confess and get another clean slate. Well, there is no clean slate by that method. That's a hoax. That's a sham. There's no repentance there. You come and tell the priest, oh, I did this, 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 and this. So he gives you penance to do. It's not repentance, it's penance. In other words, something to make up for what you've done to satisfy God, and then you're on your way. Merrily, you're good to go. That's popery. As against that, you have the gospel of grace, which is we come and we confess our sins fully and freely to the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the merit of his precious blood, he cleanses our sins away. He washes our conscience from dead, works to serve the living God. Oh, the gospel of the Reformation is a gospel that works. Divine justice, you see, demands the perfect satisfaction of God's law. It's not enough to say, well, I did my best. Your best isn't good enough. You've broken God's law. You're unable, by virtue of your fallen flesh, to render the necessary obedience to God that would save you. And this is where Christ comes in. Christ, according to Romans chapter 8 and verses 3 and 4, is the end of the law for righteousness. Notice this, Romans 8 verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. It's emphasizing our weakness. God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. True righteousness. If I could put it this way, Christ is the answer to the sin problem. Christ is the solution to the sin problem. What you and I could never do, God has done for us in the person of his dear Son. That's the gospel. The false gospel of many is do this, do this, do that, and do that, and you might be saved. The true gospel is Christ has done the work, and you receive that, and you believe upon that, and take that to yourself. That is what renders you righteous before a holy God. What we could never do in a million years, God has done. He's provided two great necessities in our justification. He obeyed completely the demands of the law, fulfilled them all, and he paid the penalty of the broken law. Jesus did this by his life, his perfect life. He went about doing good, the Bible says. He did this by his death. The wages of sin is death. Christ suffered death for us. He really died. He suffered and he died in order that we might be righteous, that we might be declared righteous before a holy God. Here's a sheet with all a list of our offences. And we're standing in the dock. And God reads out all of these offences against our name. We can't say we haven't done these things, we're guilty. But the Lord Jesus steps forward. He takes responsibility for all those offences. He says, these offences are mine. They're no longer on him, they're on me. And he is punished in our place. He is placed upon the cross. He there makes an atonement on the cross for our sins. And we are set free. And as it were, the judge puts on the white gloves. And he pronounces... There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Free from the law, O happy condition, Jesus hath bled, and there is remission, cursed by the law, and ruined by the fall. Grace hath redeemed us once for all. Once for all. O sinner, receive it. Once for all, O brother, believe it. Cursed by the law and ruined by the fall, Christ hath redeemed us once for all. When we stand before God at his throne, we'll be able to say, even then shall this be all my plea. Jesus hath lived, hath died for me. Is that your testimony tonight? I'm trusting in Jesus alone. I'm trusting in his finished work alone. And therefore, being justified by faith, I have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. May this be the testimony of all who hear my voice this night. For Christ's sake, amen.